error from penal substitution. That's what we're going to be talking about in today's video, so stay tuned. Hey there, my name is Hal. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to tune into my channel today. If you like what you see in here, make sure you hit the subscribe button below. Also, if you have any questions, please leave it in the comment section below. As you may know, uh, this video is a part of a five-video series on the atonement. And as I've mentioned in my previous um, videos on the atonement, my views on the atonement has recently changed. Um, I used to subscribe to what's called penal substitution, which you probably know about. Uh, but now I believe that the governmental theory of the atonement or the governmental view of the atonement is the most biblical and logically coherent view of the atonement. As a matter of fact, now that I've seen this and I understand this, uh, the Bible seems to fit together so much nicer. Um, everything seems to make sense, whereas under penal substitution, I struggled to fit the scripture with my ideology. So I thank God for the great men of God who came before me who were able to um, show some of these things to me, and hopefully I can share some of these things with you. Now, this video isn't so much about the governmental theory of the atonement. I've covered that in my last two videos. But this video, I want to show how penal substitution can end up in some errors that are really bad and are really um, destructive. And there's been some movements that are pretty new that teach uh, some things that I went along with for a long time, uh, because they made logical sense to me. Um, but now, I, seeing it from a different perspective, I, um, I see that they're wrong and they need to be corrected. But I also see that if you cling to penal substitution as your view of the atonement, that it's very hard to correct these things or to counter these things because these things make sense under penal substitution. Now, I do want to be clear that I'm not saying that everyone who embraces penal substitution necessarily um, has these errors. As a matter of fact, there's great men that I respect greatly who believe in penal substitution um, or some form of it who do not embrace these errors. But there are a lot of people that do. And like I said before, these errors are logical when stemming from penal substitution. And so I want to show how by clinging to penal substitution, you almost logically end up in these errors. I also want to point out that many of these errors are embraced by people who um, cling to this hyper-grace theology. And so I'm going to be quoting some things from an author of a hyper-grace book, um, but some of these things are also embraced by people who aren't into hyper-grace theology. So I'm just going to uh, throw out a few errors. Some people may cling to all these errors. Some people may cling to a few of these errors, but just take it for what it is. So the first error that I see that comes forth from penal substitution that is especially prevalent in the hyper-grace camp is a, ge a general misunderstanding of the character of God. A general misunderstanding of the character of God. And that is that God does not bring judgment anymore. The idea uh, here is that, and this relates to penal substitution, the idea here that is taught, that I don't believe, but that is taught, is that God's judgment went upon Jesus at the cross. Now, like I said in my previous videos, there is no scripture that says that God judged Jesus on the cross or that God poured out his wrath upon Jesus on the cross. That's not there in scripture. But this is what penal substitution teaches. And so some people have deducted that since God poured out his judgment upon Jesus at the cross, that he doesn't judge anymore because all of his judgment for sin was poured out upon, poured out upon Jesus. 
and therefore it would be unrighteous for God to judge because God's judgment went out upon Jesus. Here's a quote from a book that I've been reading about hypergrace. And this book is called, let me see here, Hypergrace Gospel by Paul Ellis. Uh, and this book is actually a response to Dr. Michael Brown's book um, criticizing the hypergrace movement. And I'm going to have several quotes from this book. But one of his quotes here is Forgiveness does not equal salvation. Forgiveness simply means God won't judge you for your sins. How can he, since he has already judged all your sins on the cross? And so uh, that's what penal substitution is, that God has judged Jesus in our place, that God's wrath went upon Jesus. And so there's a general idea among many like charismatics right now and among the hyper-grace movement that God doesn't judge anymore, that God is just perpetually smiling down upon uh, people, um, that he's kind of, you know, feels sorry for people who aren't Christians and just dotes over people who are Christians and that there is no judgmental side to God anymore, that God doesn't bring judgment. And this, I think, is a serious issue because we have a total misunderstanding of the character of God. God is, has always been a good God, but all, God has also been a God of judgment. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. We see it all throughout the New Testament. And I think the best way that this is described is right in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 11, we read in verse 22, I can quote it for, for you. It says, Behold the goodness and severity of God uh, on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And so this scripture clearly shows that God is a God who is very good, but God is a God who is very severe. And this is true in the Old Testament, and this is also true in the, in the New Testament. We see God pouring out his judgments in the Old Testament. We see God pouring out his judgments in the New Testament. Now, God was a God of grace in the Old Testament. God is a God of grace in the New Testament. And definitely, you know, God's grace is amplified in the New Testament because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You know, in, in the New Testament, people can be forgiven of sins that they could not be forgiven of under the Old Covenant. Um, but we also see in the New, New Testament that God's wrath is still very prevalent. Um, the, most, the, the greatest demonstration of this that, to me, cannot be denied is God's wrath uh, that was poured out upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D. If you look in the Bible, Jesus prophesies about God's judgment coming to Jerusalem and in Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, the Bible says that these are the days of vengeance when he's talking about um, the destruction of Jerusalem. These are the days of vengeance. Well, whose vengeance? God's vengeance. Now, Jesus said uh, these things would come upon them because they did not know the day of their visitation. The Israelites had rejected the prophets over and over again. And now Jesus, and now God has sent um, you know, his only begotten son whom he loves and they have hated his own son. And therefore the Lord said he was going to send his armies and destroy those people. So here we have evidence of God's judgment in the New Testament after Jesus died on the cross. Um, and so if you understand, if, if your idea of the cross is that all the world's judgment was poured out upon Jesus upon the cross, that doesn't make logical sense. Of course, under the governmental view of the atonement, it makes perfect sense. Um, and we talked about that in our previous videos, and you can go back and, and look at that if you need to understand the governmental view of the atonement. Um, there's also other examples of God's judgment in the New Testament. Of course, Herod, when he was struck with worms and died, I mean, who struck him? The devil? You know, the devil didn't want Herod dead. God struck him. 
We also have Ananias and Sapphira, who were struck dead by God. Um, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible's talking about communion, and Paul said that if we don't rightly, um, if we don't rightly discern the Lord's body, we'll be judged by God. And Paul said it was for this reason that many are sick and many sleep. And then he clearly shows that it's the judgment of God because he says, right in the next verse, he says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And so here's just some examples of God's judgment in the New Testament. And that doesn't even include the judgment of God that's going to be poured out upon the earth during the Great Tribulation. You know, if God's, if all of the judgment was poured out upon Jesus, why is God pouring out judgment during the Great Tribulation? It doesn't make sense. And that's why penal substitution doesn't make sense. But if you believe in penal substitution, you can see how people come to this um, erroneous idea of what God is like. Okay, now God is very good. There's no doubt about it. But God is also still a God of judgment. And the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is still a God of judgment as well. The second error I want to talk about is a lack of emphasis upon repentance. Now this, I feel, is like almost all of the church. Almost all of the church, and I believe it has a big part in penal substitution, has basically put repentance kind of on the the this, this the back burner. You know, repentance is not something that is preached too often, uh, not even at, at our you know, evangelical outreaches. A lot of times we preach, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But we don't say, um, we don't say, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. You know, we don't use that word, that, that phrase. We use the easy phrases that we like to, to use during evangelism, lest we offend someone. But the Bible is very clear that repentance is important. And some people also believe that salvation can come before repentance. And this is taught in the hyper-grace movement. This is also taught in Calvinistic circles. And uh, it makes sense under penal substitution, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that repentance is a prerequisite of salvation. So here's some uh, interesting quotes from this hyper-grace book on repentance. And I just want you to see what people are saying about repentance. And then I'm going to tell you what the Bible says about repentance. Here, this book um, by Paul Ellis it says, repentance isn't doing something about your sin. Repentance is responding positively to God's kindness and grace. This is interesting because I would like to ask, where does the Bible say that? <laughs> no, the Bible is clear that repentance is a turning from sin. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, um, the writer of Hebrews talks about the elementary principles of the gospel. And the first thing that he says, the very first thing on his list is repentance, what? Repentance um, responding positively to God's grace? No, it says repentance from dead works. That's the elementary principles of the gospel. Uh, we see in the Bible examples of repentance of people turning from their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance is all about changing your mind about the way you live, changing your mind about sin. That is repentance. Um, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Here's another quote. Old covenant repentance puts the focus on you and your badness, but new covenant repentance puts the focus on him and his goodness. All right? So here they're trying to make the Old Testament something that's completely outdated, something that's completely irrelevant, in regards to what the New Testament teaches, which is just erroneous. 
the Old Testament was still God. The Old Testament is there to teach us so we can learn about sin, so we can learn about repentance. Those stories that are in the Old Testament are for us to learn from, not for us just to throw out. And so when Jesus uses the story of Nineveh to teach us what repentance is, we can go back to the story of Nineveh and see what repentance is. Because if you remember in Luke chapter 11, verses 32, Jesus said that the, the men of the city of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater is than Jonah is here. So Jesus uses the Old Testament to talk about what repentance is and to say you need to do it like the people of Nineveh did. And if you want to know what repentance is, take Jesus' advice and go into the book of Jonah and see what the people of Nineveh did, and there you'll know what repentance is. So this idea that repentance in the Old Testament and repentance in the New Testament is a different thing is just pure baloney. Here's another quote. We don't repent and confess to get God to forgive us. We repent and confess because God has forgiven us. Now this is classic error from penal substitution because the idea behind penal substitution is Jesus already paid for our sins, 2,000 years ago on the cross, and if he paid for our sins, and I guess we're forgiven already like 2,000 years ago, even before we were alive, even before we were alive and before we sinned, God already forgave us, but this, this is faulty logic from, penal, from uh, a faulty premise. Um, now, this is, it's actually sound logic from a faulty premise, okay? The faulty premise is penal substitution, and the Bible does not teach that your sins have already been forgiven. All right, uh, we have plenty of evidence of that. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, that's a clear scripture. Of course, that's a scripture that really bothers people in the hyper-grace camp, and so they do some theological gymnastics to make it say something that it doesn't say. But I think a real clear scripture on this is Acts chapter 8 with Simon the sorcerer. Actually, there's a couple here, and this will give you a clear picture that Peter was not a hyper-grace preacher, nor did Peter believe your sins were forgiven 2,000 years ago upon the cross. So you remember the story that Simon the sorcerer had uh, sinned and uh, against God, and he was rebuked, and this is what Peter says, Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. Does that sound like a hyper-grace preacher? And then look at this. Look back here in uh, chapter 3 it is. Peter again preaching. He says this. Repent. All right, notice how repent is always the first thing. It's the first thing that John the Baptist said. It's the first thing that Jesus said. It's the first thing the apostles said. It should be the first thing that we say. Repentance comes first before salvation. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Why? that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice that Peter didn't say, your sins have already been forgiven, you just need to receive it. No, he said, repent and be converted. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. And so the Bible doesn't teach this idea of your sins were already forgiven 2,000 years ago on the cross. This is an erroneous teaching that comes from an erroneous view on the atonement penal substitution. So the Bible does not say that forgiveness precedes repentance. The Bible always puts repentance before forgiveness. Okay, 
So we'll see that. Let me read a few scriptures uh, for you here that shows that repentance is required. It's a prerequisite of salvation. Jesus said this, Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, so we see that what Jesus is calling us to is repentance. Repentance is what leads, brings us to a salvation. We'll see that in our next verse. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. That's 2 Corinthians 7.10. So repentance to salvation. And actually, repentance doesn't even save you of itself. You have to believe in the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel, and then you're saved. God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. We already read this one, Acts 3.19. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So notice what, notice what Peter says here. And this is not said by many people in today's church. And we ought to look at these scriptures and not try to make them say something different because they don't line up with our theology. We ought to look at these verses and say, listen, my theology doesn't line up with these verses. I should change my theology. Repent and be converted. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. So he required us to repent and change our heart, and then our sins will be blotted out. And we talked about, of course, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, where it says the foundation of the, the basic elementary truths of the gospel are repentance from dead works, and then faith towards God. All right, a third error that comes from penal substitution is that often people dismiss some of Jesus' teaching uh, because it happened before the atonement. And this, you know, this bothered me when I first started hearing this. And I went to, uh, you know, I went to a church in a school that taught that some of the things that Jesus said doesn't apply to us today because it happened before the cross. And since Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, which I disagree with, um, things are different now um, after that, that, that moment that Jesus died on the cross. And that's, of course, what a lot of hyper grace teachers teach. That some of the things that Jesus said, they'll say, yeah, they're true and they're, they're, they're right, but they're just not for us. For example, one of the things that Jesus, is, Jesus teaches, which actually the rest of the New Testament teaches as well, is that forgiveness is conditional. Forgiveness is conditional. Look at this quote from the book, um, Hyper Grace Gospel. Before the cross, Jesus preached conditional forgiveness to those who are born under the old covenant. But on the cross, he fulfilled all the requirements of the law so that you might live under the new covenant of his grace. On the night he rose from the dead, Jesus announced a new kind of forgiveness, forgiveness that is based on God's favor, favor rather than your works. All right, And this is something really typical that the hyper-grace movement does. Um, they believe, because they're right about grace, that everybody else is works-based, and that's how they'll cast everyone else as works-based. Um, but Jesus would not have been a good hyper-grace teacher because he taught different things about forgiveness. And what, they, what Jesus taught about forgiveness, the hyper-grace people just kind of whoop, throw it out. They're like, you know what? Yeah, Jesus said it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded it. But it's not for us. Why, why would it even be in the Bible? You know, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were hyper-grace teachers, why did they confuse us? Because, you know, the Gospels were written after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Why did they confuse us by adding these passages that say 
forgiveness is conditional. And what do I mean by forgiveness is conditional? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, of course, that does not work with hypergrace theology, and it doesn't really work with penal substitution. I mean, if your sins are paid for, why do you need to forgive someone to receive forgiveness if they're already paid for? No, your sins have not been paid for. All right, a fourth error that is associated with penal substitution, and that is especially embraced by the charismatic movement and by the hypergrace teachers especially. This is an error that I embraced for a long time, and that I see now as a great error and it causes a lot of hurt and pain. And that is incorrect and dangerous teaching regarding divine healing. Now, let me uh, first preface this uh, with, that, with the fact that I believe in divine healing. I believe that God does heal people. Um, and I believe the Bible teaches that very explicitly and very clearly. But this teaching that comes from this hyper-grace movement, especially... Um, and it's based off of penal substitution, is, is erroneous. And this is what I was taught in college, and this is what I was taught at many of the churches that I went to, um, but I don't believe this now, and, I, and, it's, and I'll tell you why. So there's this teaching regarding divine healing, and you might have heard someone say you already, you already have it, or divine healing is already yours, uh, it's already been paid for on the cross, you just have to receive it. Now this is based on scriptures like um, 1 Peter 2.24 that says, by his stripes you were healed. It's based on a faulty understanding of Isaiah 53 that says he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. Um, and so the, this, this idea that the atonement was a, a transactional thing where Jesus paid for our sins, well, a lot of these teachers take that to a, a step further with healing and say, listen, healing was also included in the atonement. And just like Jesus paid for our sins, Jesus paid for our healing. And if Jesus paid for our healing, this is their logic, if Jesus paid for our healing, we already have it. It's already accomplished. All we have to do is receive it. And we, you know, if we would just receive it by faith, um, we would walk in the healing that is already ours. Um, this is something that I, I, I was taught. This is something I believed. And this is something that I have taught too in, in, in days gone by. But now I realize that this is not right. This is a... Um, this is a, uh, a faulty, faulty logic, once again, uh, because of a faulty premise, the premise of penal substitution. Jesus did not pay for your healing on the cross. That's not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, this idea of you've already got it, it's already yours, it is like so fre frequently taught. It's just taught, 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 taught in these circles. You won't find any of that kind of teaching in the New Testament. You won't find one bit of it. Uh, to read the New Testament from um, beginning to end, and see if you find any idea of this. You've already got it. You just need to receive it. It's just not there. What these teachers do is they cherry pick verses here and there. And I believe they're trying to help people. I believe they want people to get, get healed. I'm not saying that this is somehow malicious. But it's just it's wrong and it's hurtful to people. Now, I say all that. Um, I say all that, but I want to be clear that I do believe in divine healing. I do believe that there is healing that comes through the prayer of faith. But the New Testament teaches it differently than a lot of these faith healers and these hyper-grace people teach it. The New Testament teaches very clearly uh, in the book of James. It says, if it is any among you sick? 
Now, notice what it says. It doesn't say, is any among you sick? Realize you're not really sick, that you've already got healing. Just receive it. That's not what it says. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Uh, let them anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And we also see that Jesus, when he talks about healing and when he talks about miracles, he always talks about faith. And so here's the thing with healing. I do believe that healing comes as a result of the prayer of faith. But the Bible does not teach that you are already healed before you pray the prayer of faith. No, the Bible teaches if you pray the prayer of faith, then healing comes as a result of that prayer of faith. Before that, you're sick. You're not already healed. That's an erroneous teaching that comes from the faulty premise of penal substitution. All right, number five. This is my last thing I'm going to talk about, the last error from penal substitution that I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm sure there's more, but I, um, I'm not going to cover those in this video. So the last error as a result of penal substitution is the idea that you can be righteous positionally, yet not actually. Now this is also referred to as imputed righteousness. Now those who hold to penal substitution, I think everyone who holds to penal substitution believes this. They believe that our sin was imputed to Jesus and also, not just that, but Jesus' righteousness was imputed also to us. And so there was like this great exchange is what, um, what they say. And I used to preach this and I used to believe this. As a matter of fact, if you go back through some of my old blogs and videos, I might say this. I don't believe this anymore. Um, the idea is that Jesus died and took our sin upon himself. Our sin went to him and then his righteousness came to us. And it was this great exchange, this great switch. And it really sounds good, but it's not biblical. Um, first of all, our sin did not go upon Jesus. We talked about that in our previous videos. And second of all, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that Jesus' righteousness comes upon us. Now, there are plenty of verses that talk talks about how righteousness has been accounted to us, how um, just like Abraham, the Bible says um, righteousness was credited to him, credited to him, through faith, even so, we are credited righteousness. God accounts our faith as righteousness, but nowhere does it say that it was that Jesus Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. It's just not there. And the reason that this is important to understand is because there's this this idea is taught that because we have Christ's righteousness, that when God looks at us, He doesn't see the things that we do wrong. Uh, he doesn't see um, how good we are or how bad we are. He just simply sees Christ's righteousness. And some go so far to say that when we die, we'll be rewarded according to Christ's righteousness. When, you know, the Bible obviously so clearly teaches that we'll, we'll be rewarded according to our own works. So that is not what the Bible teaches. Here's some, here's some quotes from the Hyper Grace book. Um, a mixed grace teacher, and this is what he believes everyone else is, uh, who's not a hyper-grace preacher. A mixed-grace preacher says you got to obey God. But the bottom line is not whether you obey Him, but whether you trust Him. Okay? So, here it's he's teaching it doesn't matter if you obey God. I mean, he, he probably wouldn't say that, but this is the implication that comes from this quote. It doesn't matter if you obey God, because God doesn't see your obedience. He only sees Christ's obedience, okay? This is the idea behind imputed righteousness, and it's erroneous. It's erroneous. Um, here's another quote. This one's by Joseph Prince. He says, Stop asking the question, Am I pleasing to God? Ask instead, Is Christ pleasing to God? 
And the implication here is that we have Christ's righteousness. And was Christ pleasing to God? Yeah, of course he was. And so since Christ was pleasing to God, we also are pleasing to God because we have Christ's righteousness. But once again, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that we have Christ's righteousness. The Bible says that we have the righteousness of God, which, is, which means we have a righteousness, righteousness that comes from God. But nowhere does it say it's Christ's righteousness that we have. It's just a righteousness that God has credited to us because of our faith. Also, the Bible very clearly tells us to not be deceived in this manner. And this is where it really bothers me about these hyper-grace teachers, is that they're saying a lot of fancy words and a lot of fancy um, theology, but the Bible tells us on this very subject to be careful that we won't be deceived. Um, and this is what it says in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. That's 1 John 3, 7. Notice it doesn't say, he who is righteous has Christ's righteousness no matter what he does. That's not what it says. He who practices righteousness is righteous. But the implication that is given from these hyper-grace teachers is, no matter what you do, you're righteous because of what Christ did. Now, what they'll turn around and say is that because you have Christ's righteousness, you'll act righteous. But the truth is, many people do not act righteous who listen to these people say that it doesn't matter what you do, you already have Christ's righteousness. And so people who sit in their churches, they live in sin, they live unrighteous lifestyles, and they think they're righteous because they're told that they have Jesus' righteousness. It's just not good. Now we got to understand this, that the gospel is a gracious call to return to obedience. All right? The gospel is a gracious call to return to obedience. You know, this isn't preached hardly anymore because we're just so mixed up in our head. The gospel is God calling out to us and saying, I'm going to offer you forgiveness if you repent from your sin and come back to obedience to the gospel. If you come to obedience under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is what, exactly what Jesus t- taught. He said in Matthew chapter 28, Go and teach everyone to obey what I have told you. All right? That's the gospel. Jesus said, come follow me on the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. What is the narrow road? It's the road of obedience to God's commands. It's the road of holiness. That's what God has called us to. And, you know, we get on that road. It's a grace walk. We get on that road, and we're walking in the fellowship and the grace of God to obedience of God. And sometimes we get bumped off the road. But what do you do? You don't say, oh, well, I got bumped off, now I'm going to live in sin. No, you repent, ask for forgiveness, get right back on the road and keep growing. This is the gospel. This is what God has called us to. Holiness, obedience, righteousness. Yes, it has everything to do with what you do. God said, don't be a hearer of the word only, but a doer of the word, and don't deceive your own self in this matter. And this is such elementary stuff, and it's amazing that people will accuse me of heresy when they're the ones that are absolute heretics that are teaching that you can be righteous apart from uh, being righteous. Heresy is what it is. It's absolute heresy, and it's going to end up people in hell. Now, I believe these grace teachers, they, they mean well, and I believe they're truly saved, but there's a lot in their churches that are not truly saved because they believe this garbage. Get rid of this garbage and stick with the B-I-B-L-E. Those are some of the errors that I see in regards to penal substitution. I, they are, can be very serious. 
very serious errors, and I think that um, more error is, is going to come as a result of this. And I think a correct understanding of the atonement will clear all this up so much. It'll help your mind to be so free from this by just simply understanding the atonement in its proper way. Well, I hope you liked this video. I hope it helped you. If it did, make sure you hit the subscribe button below. Also, if you have any questions or comments, or if you disagree, please leave it in the comment section below. I'd love to hear from you and interact with you. Thanks so much for watching. Have a beautiful day.